0: So the title of tonight's talk is Drive Through That Town. When I was 18 years old and after my first year in college, I took a job in Yellowstone National Park for the summer. As you all already know, I lived in Minneapolis, or at that point I was going to the University of Minnesota. And um, I decided to drive my little bug out to Yellowstone, and there are a couple choices of how I could go. I could take the interstate, which would be faster and easier. Or I could take the back roads, and um, it would take longer. I decided I wanted to go the back roads. So I drew, drove for two or three days. It probably took me to drive on the back roads. And I traveled past... The silos and the fields and the prairie and the little towns. I got to see what the little towns were like. I even had a traffic accident in one of those little towns. Somebody fender bendered me and I had to stop at the insurance agency and check that out. <laughs> um, I arrived at Yellowstone feeling somehow integrated. Like I was connected with the experience from having taken the back roads rather than the interstate. On the way back, I also took the back roads. And um, in Montana, I got invited to an Indian um, powwow, Native American powwow, where um, I was, oh, there are only two uh, Anglo folks, me being one of them. And that came also from going on the back roads. I still like to take back roads when I can. I contrasted that recently to a trip to Burma I took to teach in January, where I took a nonstop flight from JFK to Bangkok, which took 17 and a half hours. And so I got on the plane in JFK and got off the plane in Bangkok, and I felt totally disconnected. (laughs) It was like, wait a moment. What just happened? So we have this new way, our newer way, where we uh, like to take the interstate. We like to go really fast. We like to get places fast. We like to avoid the towns um, and take the bypasses. We're kind of obsessed with getting somewhere. And I wonder what we lose by not driving through the towns. I wonder what we lose with our... uh, Emphasis on speed and efficiency and avoiding the towns. Recently, I read a book by Bernie Glassman, a Zen teacher, a book um, about Zen cooks, something like that. I can't remember the exact title. He says, At its deepest, most basic level, Zen, or any spiritual path, meditation, is much more than a list of what we can get from it. In fact, meditation is a realization of the oneness of life in all its aspects. It's not just the pure or spiritual part of life, pure, spiritual, in quotes. It's the whole thing. It's flowers, mountains, rivers, streams, and the inner city, and homeless children on 42nd Street. It's the empty sky and the cloudy sky and the smoggy sky, too. It's the pigeon flying in the empty sky, the pigeon shitting in the empty sky, and walking through the pigeon droppings on the sidewalk. It's the rose growing in the garden, the cut rose shining in the vase in the living room, the garbage where we throw the rose away, and the compost where we throw away the garbage. Meditation is life, our life. It's coming to the realization that all things are nothing but the expression of myself, and myself is nothing but the full expression of all things. It's a life without limits. So meditation isn't about the interstate or the bypasses. It's about driving through the towns. Connecting with all of life. Connecting fully with life and all of its beauty and its sorrow. Tonight I'd like to discuss a little bit this process of how we walk this spiritual path using the framework uh, of the Buddha, of the Four Noble Truths. Actually, I'm only going to talk about three of them tonight, the Three Noble Truths. The Fourth Noble Truth is the truth of the path that we're walking. The path... That emphasizes our conduct in the world, emphasizes the development of our minds, and emphasizes wisdom. So there I finished with the fourth, <laughs> and now i 'll talk about the three first three noble truths, after the Buddha was enlightened, it said that this was the first sermon or discourse that he gave to um, those five ascetics that he had practiced with when he had done his ascetic practices, who were actually a little upset with him for giving up on the ascetic practices. They thought that he had um, copped out. So after he was enlightened, he went back to them and was trying to share with them what he had learned in the hopes that he could help them some. So this is the gist of what the Buddha learned. The first noble truth is that life isn't always going to be easy, that there is suffering in life, that life is difficult. Now, there's obvious ways that we all understand that. We understand that we have bodies that get old, get sick, die, hurt, ache. We also understand that we have minds that torment us at times, that we experience sorrow, lamentation, and despair, as the Buddha wrote it. These are obvious ways. These weren't the ways the Buddha was most interested in. The Buddha was most interested in, when he talked about life being difficult or there being suffering in life, was the fact that we live in a world of change and that we can't control it. So, given that truth... At times, we're going to experience things we don't want to experience. We're going to experience the unpleasant. And we're going to be separated at times, or we're going to eventually be separated from all that we love. So the truth that because we live in a world of change, we are going to experience all the vicissitudes of life. We're going to experience pleasure and pain, loss and gain, happiness, and sorrow. We often think that freedom is getting away from this, getting away from the unpleasant. But it's interesting that the Buddha said this is a noble truth. I'm interested in that word, a noble truth. Perhaps it's a truth to be respected rather than avoided. But we do often start the spiritual path thinking that freedom is some kind of control of the mind or control of life. And we live in a society that really encourages this belief. It's good for consumerism. (laughs) and Capitalism runs on it. (laughs) It isn't actually that way everywhere. Um, Often it takes leaving your own culture to to have a sense that um of what your own culture is like and so having recently been in Burma and then come back to the United States it's like wow we really believe in control around here <laughs> <laughs> and we think that control is going to bring us happiness that's why we hope we hope that it'll work we hope that it will um, keep us from experiencing unpleasantness and, and only keep pleasantness in our lives. So we try not to drive through the towns that we like, don't like. We try to avoid the towns we don't like. But this doesn't lead to an integrated spirituality, to a mature, connected, and integrated Spirituality. So one way we may try to do this is to try to um, control our minds so that they're very concentrated. Now, concentration is great. Marv talked about it last night. The happiness of a concentrated mind. Concentration it does help us um, have some clarity in our minds, but it's not considered the goal of spiritual practice to be able to control our minds. To you know, to be able to repress what we don't like and just keep them focused. We've all tried it. We all do try it. (laughs) Um, and it, And it works to a certain extent that we feel happy, but what about when you get up off the cushion? You know, we can't control that concentration all the time. It's not the end of our search. One of my favorite recent quotes by somebody named Brad Warner in a book called Hardcore Zen. Meditation isn't about blissing out or going into an alpha brainwave trance. It's about facing who and what you really are in every single damn moment. And you aren't just bliss. I'll tell you that right now. You're a mess. (laughs) We all are. But here's the thing. That mess is itself enlightenment. I think he's advocating driving through the towns. So the first noble truth is that we're a mess (laughs) and that life is difficult, right? That there's struggle in life because we live in this world of change and we're not sure how to relate to it. So the second noble truth is the cause of suffering. And the Buddha said that the cause of our suffering is that, that we rebel against the way things are, that we react against the way things are, that we have this thirst or craving for life to be different than it is. We have, for some mysterious reason, taken birth in this realm of change, this realm of st- joy and sorrow, this beautiful, mysterious, magnificent world of constant change. It should be pretty obvious that if we take our refuge or our happiness in things being any particular way, we're in trouble. It's not going to work due to the nature of how this world is. One that we've incarnated in. Some kind of permanent happiness and conditions aren't going to do it. That doesn't mean that we can't feel pleasure from pleasant experiences and that we won't, and that we that we, we will feel that. But looking for some kind of permanent happiness or looking for that as a refuge is going to be a problem. My first long retreat here. I wound up staying for five months, and there was a period of about a month on that retreat where the theme that was going through my mind all the time was how can I make myself happy? How can I be happy? And I was pretty much looking for a permanent solution, <laughs> not just temporary, like a cup of tea. I was looking for, you know, what, what was going to do it? And I was, I was 24 years old, at that point in my life, I actually, um, when I came to do my retreat, I had no plans afterwards, so I didn't know what I was going to do. I just finished that teaching in Nicaragua that I mentioned, and I didn't know where I was going to go next. And so I found that the thoughts that occupied my mind over and over again were, okay, how can I be happy? I thought, all right. I was seeming to enjoy seclusion somewhat, so I thought, I'll get a little hut on a mountain somewhere where I can be all by myself and meditate a lot that'll do it and then my mind was like oh but I think I'll get lonely so then I thought well you know what (laughs) this went on for a month (laughs) so then it was like oh you know what I think a community I'll find a community that I can live in and then um you know maybe some spiritual people and then I'll be happy and then I thought Oh, no, they're going to drive me crazy. (laughs) That's not going to work. Um, And then I thought, well, okay, maybe I'll get married and I'll have some kids. And and I thought, (laughs) and then I thought, oh, no, that's so much responsibility. I don't know if I'm up for that. It's funny looking back on it, but the truth of the matter is it was a heart-wrenching period. And I was really afraid. I I felt a lot of fear. In fact, um, you know, I was pretty concentrated. I'd been sitting for quite a while. And so I'd wake up in the morning, and, you know, the idea when you're really doing um, a longer retreat is, you know, you notice the first thing in your mind when you wake up. And for days and days, the first thing in my mind was fear. And um, I was, you know, it was hard. It was a hard time. So finally, you know, after about a month of this, I had this insight. I went into my retreat at my um, meeting. I was meeting with Sharon Salzberg at that time. So I went into her with an, and, you know, I said, um, Sharon, it um, doesn't look like anything's going to permanently make me happy. <laughs> and she said, uh-huh. <laughs> so I kind of paused a minute and I said, well, it looks like, then the answer is to try to make peace with each moment as it is. And she said, yeah. And what was fascinating was that that afternoon the fear went away, you know, that I'd been living with for a month. Because I was actually starting, the fear was because I wasn't looking in the right place. I wasn't finding an answer. But when I really pointed in a place that, we can find some happiness, and and um, you know then then it was like okay, I could settle the fear. Went away, yeah, not forever, <laughs> but it, definitely that that sense of kind of unending fear went away. So this is this was my um, one of my times of really working with trying to understand this second truth of the cause of our dissatisfaction in life is craving, wanting, wanting some kind of permanent answer. A student once asked a Zen teacher, Steve Allen, if you were were given a wish-fulfilling jewel, what would you wish for? And he replied, to stop wishing. Because he understood that that craving in our hearts, that's what closes us down. That's what causes us to suffer. It's that craving that actually keeps us from being with life as it is, from connecting fully with life as it is. It closes our hearts. So we have to figure out this conundrum of living in a world of change. We have to figure it out for ourselves. You know, a teacher can tell you, yeah, the cause of your suffering is craving, but we're not going to believe it until we see it for ourselves. We're not going to integrate it and understand it until we kind of duke it out ourselves. And certainly when we talk about our reactivity our reactivity being the cause of our suffering. So it is the craving, but it's also the pushing away. They're, they're just two sides of the same coin. They're basically both being un- dissatisfied with life as it is or unaccepting of life as it is. When we talk about that being the cause of our suffering, it doesn't mean that um, we don't try to make our lives more comfortable. It's not pass- we're not talking about passivity. But given that we do the best we can to live our lives and make them pleasant, which is a fine thing to do, then we prepare ourselves to deal with the flow of life, the unexpected or the expected change. So the third noble truth is the truth of freedom, freedom from suffering. Getting to the good news now. This is a great question, is what is freedom? This is what we're trying to figure out. One way that we talk about freedom in Buddhism is nibbana. What is nibbana or nirvana? Because it's so far out of our conceptual realm, it's difficult to talk about but we could say that it's a completely unfettered heart or a kind of peace beyond anything that we can conceptualize. But when we talk about that, it sounds rather unattainable, like something in the future. The truth of the matter is that each moment gives us a chance to discover what freedom is. This is a chance to explore what freedom is. There's a poem that a student of mine gave me seven years ago. There's a date on it, and it's called The Flute. Where in all the awful apparatus we acquired to hasten freedom is the flute, the flute, thin thing, the thin, thin thing, that thinner than the rain rings freedom in. I like this poem because it points towards simplicity and it points towards connecting with life maybe freedom is simpler than we make it out to be. I think to really understand freedom, we have to develop this nitty-gritty, down-to-earth connection with our lives, with the moment. It's not some state in the future. It's only now. Now is the only moment we have to be free. I've been reading this great book of quotes from Suzuki Roshi, a very well-known Zen teacher who passed away a while ago, one of the first big Zen teachers in this country. And he's talking to the students on the fourth day of uh, Seishin, which is like a meditation retreat, so pretty much the same day we're at. It says, on the fourth day of the Seishin, as we sat with our painful legs, aching backs, hopes and doubts about whether it was worth it, Suzuki Roshi began his talk by saying slowly, "The problems you are now experiencing will go away." we were all sure he was going to say. We'll continue for the rest of your life," he concluded.) <laughs> <laughs> the way he said it, we all laughed. <laughs> wasn't trying to be depressing or anything I think Pascal liked that one didn't he (laughs) he was trying to help um, help us not put freedom somewhere in the future right when we have some life free of problems even the Buddha had back problems in some of his later discourses, you know, he'd say, hey, Sariputta, you have to give the talk tonight. My back hurts. I'm going to lay down. I was just reading today. I've been reading. I like to read a lot. You might have figured that out. Um, reading a book by Tony Packer, who used to be a Zen teacher, and now she won't call herself that anymore. And um, she described uh, enlightenment as... A vulnerable flow of aliveness with no resistance. A vulnerable flow of aliveness with no resistance. Why does she say vulnerable? If we're really open, we are vulnerable because of this world of change. And we know and we learn that Control won't do it. A number, a couple of years ago, um, I decided that retreat in the United States was getting just a bit too easy for me. And, um, well, you know, you can make yourself so comfortable here. (laughs) You know, and there's illusion you can control. We, we, We can sustain it through a retreat if you try hard you can sustain it you have to try hard but you can (laughs) you know like you'll go to your room if there's a lot of noise in the hall or um you know you don't like the food you'll have your own little stash of food and you know there's lots of ways to make ourselves really comfortable here and so I decided um uh the teacher training group I was in was going to Burma and so I decided um that I would risk going I have a very very sensitive body and um it gets whacked out pretty easy. So I knew I was kind of biting off a big chunk. To I hadn't been to Asia in 20 years. Um, and so I, I decided, you know what, I'm going to go to Burma and I'm going to learn about not controlling. And I learned. <laughs> so I went to this little retreat center that I had mentioned the other night. And um, the first day there, so we arrived there, and um, they showed me my little kuti, my little hut. And um, there was a wardrobe in there, and it was full of um, mothballs, which are kind of toxic for me. So I was like, okay. And then we tried to get the wardrobe out of the cottage, and I pulled out my back. And then they showed me the um, room where we were going to have the seminar, and it was this new building they just built and they just painted um, all the inside floors with uh, cement paint, which is toxic for me. (laughs) And and I also um, have some uh, difficulties with asthma, and there were a lot of wood fires and and the dust, so the air was very poor quality. And um, that first night that I was there, they had an all-night celebration in town because like, these hundred new monks had taken robes, apparently. And um, there was loud, loud music most of the night. I think they took a break between 2 and 4. Um, I know they started up again at 4. <laughs> so I hadn't expected to learn that much that quick. <laughs> so I, I, um, I panicked. I was like, oh, my God. I am not going to live through this experience. Because like I said, maybe some of you, this all wouldn't be a big deal, but I have a really sensitive body, and I really, really take things in. And then on top of it, I it, there were five. I needed five planes to get home, so it wasn't like I could just change my plane ticket. There wasn't any email, you know. There was one phone in the home monastery, and, um, you know, it, it wasn't going to be easy to get out of there. So I... Um, I sat down with myself, had a little talk with myself and <laughs> I said if it, it was a 3 week retreat, I said if the next 3 weeks is only about learning about panic I'm going to do it. I'm up for it. And I got interested in panic. And it was really interesting. You know, it was interesting to watch how it would come in waves. It's like it would start low and go all the way up and shh, and then if I put my energy lower in my body, would, the wave would go down. and Then another wave would come, and I just got really interested in panic. This is what I mean by drive through any town. People often ask us the question, how can I work with such and such? How can I work with panic? How can I work with anger? How can I work with fear? And Often when they're asking that question, what they're really asking is, how can I make it go away? So this year I was teaching in Burma a few months ago, and my teacher, Michelle McDonald, who, by the way, is responsible for starting this retreat, um, she had this phrase that we started to use, and it was, she'd just say, drive through that town. So somebody would be asking us, how do I work with longing, for example? And basically asking, how can I make it go away? And we would say, drive through that town. That's the way. That's the way to freedom. Drive through that town. So now, after that experience with panic, I can't say that I'd never panic anymore, but it doesn't control me like it used to. There's much more freedom. I know I can drive through that town. So... I could even go to Burma and teach this time and know that I would be okay. So we look at what comes up in our minds and we look at how we are relating to it. So we look to see if there's reactivity. Is there clinging, is there aversion, or is there acceptance? And this is how we develop freedom, by looking deeply at our experience and how we relate to it. Someone in group today pointed out what a relief it is, actually, when you're resisting experience, you know, and something's coming along, you're like, no, not today. (laughs) And then when you finally relax into it and just allow it to be, there's this new openness to life, and there's a deeper ability to connect with all of life, Somebody was seeing that and pointed it out in our group and how much more um, connected we feel when we can drive through the town, just go into the experience. And we shouldn't have an idea then when something like panic or something else comes up about how it should go. Sometimes we think, oh, I can't really get into it because it goes away. Sometimes that's the trip. Sometimes it's just a quick trip down to the convenience store and back. (laughs) It's not a long drive, you know. So we don't need to have ideas about how our our exploring should go, just to be open to look, you know, what's happening. And it may not be panic. It may be your knee hurts and, and you want it to go away. Can you explore that? So I came back from this trip to Burma a couple years ago, And while I was in Burma, one of the the teachers there who was giving the seminar gave us a talk on 10 kinds of equanimity. I was just thought that was fascinating. And I heard about a teacher who gave a talk on 20 kinds of silence. This is the kind of interest we want to take in our lives. So I came back and I thought, I'd like to write a talk like that on something. And I thought, well, what do I know a lot about? And I thought, fear. (laughs) I can write a talk on Fear. So I sat down, and I listed the different kinds of fear that I'd learned about in my meditation practice, and I came up with thirteen kinds of fear. And then a couple of weeks ago, I was giving this talk somewhere, and um, I hadn't brought my list of fears along with. And they said, "Well, what? What? What are your thirteen fears?" And I came up with fifteen that day. <laughs> <laughs> so there's the black hole. There's terror. Panic, numb fear, dissociated fear, overwhelmed fear, alert fear, fear of a thing, prickly fear, fear of myself, fear of the future, fear of the unknown, anxiety, free-floating fear, and background hum fear. And then when I wrote this talk, I realized that different aspects of mindfulness, remember that rain? Different aspects of mindfulness actually helped me hold different kinds of fear. So I got really interested in like which which part of mindfulness um, really helped me with each different kind of fear. So then when I was giving this talk a few weeks ago, I thought, well, that's not really the whole story. The 13 or 15 kinds of fear. I thought, you know, I have, experience so much happiness from this path, so much happiness and joy. I should try to write about the different kinds of happiness that I've experienced. And I came up with a list of 14 kinds of happiness that I have experienced from this practice. There's the happiness of simple presence, the happiness of sense pleasures, the happiness of stillness, of a clear conscience of love, of compassion, the thrill of joy, the happiness of others' happiness, mudita, the happiness of contentment, the happiness of giving, the happiness of peace, the happiness of equanimity, the happiness of bliss, the happiness of non-separation. Some people have this idea that meditation will make us flat, less alive. That's one of the kind of myths of meditation, that somehow when we talk about getting peaceful meditation, we're just going to kind of go like, mm, this flat line. My experience with meditation is not that um, we drive through fewer towns, we drive through more. That we become more of who we are. More of the beautiful within us can shine through. When I was in Burma this last time, since I was teaching, I had some free time to travel, um, to walk around, actually. We walked everywhere there in the sagain Hills. There's like 700 monasteries in a in a pretty small area 700 pagodas and monasteries in a fairly small area so you just walk everywhere and just monasteries and nunneries and the atmosphere is so beautiful and we got to know some of the monks and nuns and there were two in particular that we visited several times each and we had nick- my teacher Michelle had nicknames for them one was the happy monk and the other was angel saida and what I'm telling you about these two is, first of all, they were both quite amazing beings, um, pretty enlightened. And they were completely different from each other. So Happy Monk, he was just like a bubbling spring, just like so happy. And he laughed, and he was 91 years old. So he'd sit in his chair and just laugh and laugh and you know, he'd talk about how happy he you know, <laughs> things made him. And you go in his, around him, and you just feel happy. Like, <laughs> once I, I asked him one, one time, I said, well, why are you so happy? <laughs> <laughs> and he, well, that's a good question, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> he said, "Meta." And he had this heart like that. It was just amazing. Then the angel Sayadaw, he would walk into his monastery. I would walk into his monastery. And just even going by the doors of the monastery, I felt like I was walking into this timeless sea of peace. And being around him, he was like that. Just felt like his energy was just like an ocean. And still and quiet. So they were both quite enlightened, and they were completely different. And I found that really inspiring. It's like you get to be who you are. And I could imagine the happy monk, you know, being like the class clown or, you know, something like this. And the angel side all being this quiet, maybe shy kid. But when we really um, uh, are able to work with the fetters in our hearts and to find freedom with the fetters of our hearts, we just get to shine more of the beauty through. It. And these two monks really inspired me to see that. So we work it out. We work it out for ourselves. we look, we see, we explore how we struggle against life. And in that exploration we we find the freedom. We find a greater ability to let things be as they are and to hold them with a kind and caring awareness. And we find then that we can move through life more gracefully. So we find that when things perhaps don't go the way we want, it's okay. We adjust more quickly. Or when we lose something that we care about or someone that we care about, certainly we feel the sorrow. But there's also a greater ability to accept that that is the way life is. But as I said before, it's not about um, making life be any particular way. There's a quote that I read out of, um, it's by a woman named Nina Weiss. I read it out of the Inquiring Mind magazine, which some of them will be out at the end of the retreat. When I began to practice Buddhism, I learned that the Buddha presented a methodology for freedom from suffering. I imagined this meant I could manage life's myriad challenges in a state of steady, unmediated bliss. As my practice deepened, I grew to understand that freedom is not about resting in sublime equanimity despite the suffering of loved ones and strangers. Freedom is about the willingness to feel deeply. Freedom is about the willingness to fall apart. Freedom is about holding on to nothing. And at the heart of that letting go, that disillusion, that surrender, You discover something sublime and unspeakably, heartbreakingly raw. Call it love. Call it compassion. Call it kindness. Call it redemption. Freedom that embraces what is acceptable and rejects what is not is not freedom. Freedom is wholly democratic. Freedom includes everything. So we find as we understand more deeply what freedom is and our ability to gracefully move through this life grows, we start to see that our ability to care becomes transformed. As we're less stuck in our self-centered stories, because that's really what our reactivity is, it's our self-centered stories about life. As we're less stuck in our self-centered stories, we find that the natural radiance of our hearts are able to shine through. So our Buddha nature, our ability to love, to care, to feel compassionate, to feel joyful, shines through. So for me on this path of freedom, we find out that freedom really isn't any different than love. This openness of heart heals our feeling of separateness and leads to a feeling of connection with others and love. So it's not about not caring. This acceptance isn't about passivity or not caring. We actually find that our ability to care grows deeper, and we find that we're motivated then to be of use in this world to be of service in this world, to alleviate suffering, to help others, to be connected. The Buddha said, the spiritual life, monks, he addressed monks a lot, but we'll just say all of you, Yogis, The spiritual life, yogis, does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of moral discipline for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable liberation of mind that is the goal of this spiritual life, its heartwood and its end unshakable liberation of mind what's unshakable where can we rest when we I was teaching in Burma that was a question that was asked during one of the question and answer periods said, where can we rest it's a great question what brings peace what's unshakable liberation of mind That's our koan. That's our riddle. That's what we're learning together. So as we learn that, then we offer the gift of our hearts, the gift of our wisdom to this world, to our families, our friends, our communities, our planet. Back to the awakened heart that I mentioned the first night. The awakened heart is not going to sit passively by. The awakened heart is engaged in this world, intimately and deeply engaged. I want to end with a quote from a book called Embracing the Present by a man named Leonard Jacobson. Awakening is immediate. It is now or it is never. It is always now or never. And now is always presenting itself to you. It never gives up on you. Each new moment offers you yet another opportunity to be present. Moment to moment, redemption is always available. Let's sit for a minute or two. Time for some walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.